0: Starting in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Let's pray. Lord, just so thankful for the song we just sang that reminds us that we are endued with every grace in this journey. When we pray to you, Lord, Lord, give us this grace. Lord, we know that you are um, beyond generous and you give without reproach. And Lord, we, we do need it. We do need your grace. We need your, your love, your favor, your face to shine upon us. Lord, we need to be taught. We need understanding. Lord, we are creatures. You are creator. You are redeemer. We are redeemed. We just need you. We, we pray that this morning, as we open this text... That you would speak to us. What an amazing thing that you have given us a text to establish for us a a canon of truth that we can rely on, that we can live by, that we can feed on, be renewed by, be corrected by, be trained by. And Lord, we just praise you for that. Thank you so much for the holy scriptures. Um, There is no other book like it. It is unique among all other books, all other historic documents. It is majestic. It is coherent. It is beautiful. It is probing. It is sharp. And so, Lord, again, just thank you for the gift in the Holy Scriptures. Help us to be renewed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. First Peter 4, 1 and 2. So last week, we took a look at verse 1. And one of the things that before we even start to really dig in, I want you to kind of feel as we think about verse 1 and 2 is that Peter is not so much telling us to do something. It's implied, strongly implied, but he's not there's not a command really here, okay? It's there's sort of facts stated. What do I mean by that? Well, He says that he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Let me back up. He actually does say to arm ourselves with this mind, so I take that back. But, But listen to the fact he states based on what he just said. Why should we arm ourselves? Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's a fact, right? It's just this statement. It comes with an incentive, right? I want to cease from sin. Peter tells you how. And he says that if you live a life where you resolve to obey God no matter what it will cost you, well, then you cease from sin. That is, you're no longer characterized by that life of sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Again, in verse 2, there's not really a command. There's just this fact that living for God and living for the will of God means you're no longer living for lusts. So embedded in that is a very important principle. And that is that the path of following Jesus Christ, the path of obeying God, and living for your sin are two diametrically opposed paths. Some of you may be struggling with sin. Perhaps you've been entrenched in it lately. And I can tell you why. It's because you stopped living for the will of God. Now that's a very simple, basic Sunday school answer. But that's just the truth. Something happened. You got derailed and you dropped your sword. That's what Peter's holding out here. What, and here's my main point. Just this little introductory comment here. Is that Peter is calling us back to this sort of a, a, a recounting of the cost of following Jesus. He's, he's, he's causing you to remember, like, r- remember here that the one who suffers in obedience to God, this isn't just suffering in general, but the one who suffers, like Christ, to ceased from sin. Remember that. And arm yourself with that same purpose. You have to rearm yourself with that same mind. That same mind that says, I'm going to obey Jesus Christ no matter the cost. And so I just want us, I want us to remember that. I want you to kind of feel that, that this is an opportunity even yet again this morning to just think fresh about the cost. Arm yourself. This is, this is Peter calling you once again to remember this is, this is a daily cross, right? And then we, we pointed that out in Luke where Jesus says, you can't be my disciple unless you deny yourself and daily take up your cross. Why well, do you daily take up an instrument of execution? Well, you, you daily resolve that my will is on the altar, even if it costs me my life. And and that's something you have to renew. You have to remember, right? I mean, it's not something that's just automatic. It's something you have to remember. And this is Peter's point. He's wanting to renew us. He's wanting to renew us in this resolve. Um, So, and, and like I said, there's this glorious incentive that when we have this mindset to be willing to suffer like Christ that those who suffer as, 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 as a Christian ceases from sin. What a statement. As I said last week, it's like Peter saying, you know, find me someone who's entrenched in sin and I'll find you someone who's dropped the ball. The one who obeys Jesus is willing to suffer for him, has made a decisive break with sin. They're not being drugged around by sin. They're not obeying the flesh. Peter isn't saying you'll be sinlessly perfect, but, he'll be, but you will be one who is willing to so obey Christ no matter the cost that you will not see them as a, as a sinful person. Right? You will not see them characterized by that any longer. So that was verse 1. Peter goes on to elaborate verse 1 in verse 2. What does it mean to be see- to cease from sin? Well, it means that to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And I want to I think about that this morning. I want you to think about that with me. I want us to consider this verse. Here's another way of saying, he who has suffered for Christ has ceased from sin. It means you're not living for your lusts. Christians, genuine Christians, are not people drug around by their lusts. There's a wonderful reality embedded in this that Christians have power. Jeff this morning preached a, a message at Miracle Hill, and he called it, I don't know if it was his title or just what he calls it, but Religious Without Regeneration, speaking of the Pharisees. They had the Bible, they had prayer, they fasted. They were looked like holy men, but they were utterly powerless. To say no to sin. Utterly powerless to really love. And Peter is saying here, we have power. I mean, he's not just talking about like showing up to church. He's talking about lusts. Think of it. He's talking about inward desires that do not dictate our lives. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the interior that that certainly expresses itself and outward activity, but, but this is what Peter, Peter assumes here, that the gospel has power, the spirit of God has power to break the power of lusts. So the question would be, what is lust? Right? If we're Christians, not to live according to the dictates of the lusts of men, what, what is lust? Most of the time, we think lust synonymous with strong sexual desire. Right? that's When I say that immediately, that's probably what you think. I did. Matter of fact, I'll just tell you this. I started making a lot of points and application points based on that when I was doing my sermon. And I was like, you know, I need to, get, I need to make sure I get back into the original and look at this a little deeper. And sure enough, I do a word study on it and I'm like, okay. It's definitely a part of it, but it's much bigger than just sexual passion. The term translated lust here can be far more broad than just sexual desire, forbidden sexual desire. The term itself, most of the time, denotes strong desire or cravings for, for that which is evil, either because it's inherently evil or because you give wrong attention to that thing. The thing itself may not be evil, but you have a strong desire an inordinate strong desire for that thing that makes it evil. I mean, right off the bat, you should be thinking, I don't know, things like money or things that just may, may be neutral in and of themselves. But, so, but before I get too ahead of myself, just, just know that essentially it means strong desire or cravings for that which is evil or an inordinate strong desire or cravings for something that ends up making it evil. But a couple times the the term itself can include a strong desire for something very good. And we'll look at that too. And before we start, just, just to know here that God isn't against desire. He's not against passion. He's not against that at all. You know, we're not to become Buddhists who think the key to life is to escape desire into sort of an emotionless, stoic-like state of living. We are passionate, emotional beings. But Peter is saying as believers, we no longer live for certain cravings and lusts that used to characterize us. Just because we are passionate beings doesn't mean we follow our passions some of those passions are misplaced. So let's just take a quick journey just to look at the word in a few places. So Matthew 4.19, if you want to just listen, I'll read the scriptures and you can think through it with me. But just listen carefully here. Looking at this word lust. So Jesus speaking about the parable of the the sower who went out to sow and he sowed different types of ground. And out of four types of ground, three of those seeds... Became unfruitful, and one became fruitful. We hear Jesus is talking about one of those seeds, and he says this The worries of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires, there it is, desires or lusts for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So here the term for lust is translated desires. And Jesus here is pretty general. I mean, you can't get much general than the desires for things. For other things. Think of that. He's speaking to things that you strongly desire. And he's not he's not talking about. The everyday stuff, like my computer is broken, I desire to go buy a new one. Right? He's not talking about that. He's talking about something different than that. It's 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 a desire for things that becomes so consuming. Remember that word, desire, is a strong word. It's a passionate word. It's 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 this desire has become so consuming that the word of God in your life is choked out. So just remember, he's not necessarily talking about people who've never heard of Jesus. He's talking about people upon whom the seed of God has been sown. He's talking about you, at some level, and me. People who have heard the word. Now ultimately, if we're believers, this isn't going to characterize us, but, but he is saying, there is a warning embedded here, isn't there? All four of these individuals who heard the word of God or all all four of these seeds all heard the word of God. And he says here that one of these seeds, becomes unfruitful, because they let their desires dictate their life in such a way that choke the word. That is, these desires become so focused on on themselves and, and not on eternal matters or word of God matters that the word has no place in that life. Things. Things. The desires for other things. Could be this fascination with a particular neighborhood. i really got to live in that neighborhood. Really got to have that kind of house, or that kind of car, or that kind of lifestyle. Think of that. All that kind of stuff can just become all-consuming, can't it? It can be all-consuming to where you're like, wow, I... You, be, you know, you're just scouring the internet. You're, you're, you're just fascinating. I'm not saying when you look for a house, you, I mean, you've got to look for a house. I'm just saying, but you can, get, you can get so entrenched in thinking that you can paint a picture of your life that needs to be like this and that and you're doing everything you can to make your life look like this and that and, it, and, and then you realize like two weeks have gone by you haven't been in the scriptures at all. This has become all-consuming and all-important. And I say that because in our Western context, you know, we, we, we have this, thing before us all the time of, you know, just stuff. We have way more options than most third world countries. You think about Andre and C.A.R. Andre doesn't have options, right? I mean, Andre is like, I hope I eat today. We're like, man, we can create this whole world for ourselves if we want to. And Jesus is saying, watch out. Watch out. It could be to have this kind of education or that or, 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 or this kind of school or it, this kind of job. It really can be anything that consumes your longings such that it chokes the ability of the word to have free course in your life. This is why Proverbs says, brethren, watch your heart. With all diligence for, for from it flow the, the issues of life. It starts in the heart this is not this this is important it starts in the heart recognize when your heart begin you know you know when your heart begins to drift away into things right into stuff into lifestyle and then and all of a sudden the scriptures they just and you know they become optional the word of God just becomes optional whatever so that's desires for things that's this word that person that gave themselves to those, those things and gave themselves inordinate desires for those things were choked out and they didn't last. It's crazy, but it's true. Luke 22.15, right before Jesus is going to the cross the night before he's with his, his disciples and it says, And he said to them, I have earnestly desired, there's the word, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Here, of course, is a positive use of the term by Jesus. Jesus has a strong desire to be with the brethren the day before he goes to the cross. Jesus, he loves his disciples, longs to be with them, even when he's faced with suffering. What about you? Do you long? Do you have that same desire? Do you strongly desire this? Jesus is about to go to the cross and he doesn't want to be alone. He wants to be with his brethren. What about you when you go through hardship? There's some, sometimes there's a sense in which you, know, you, you just need to be with your spouse if you're dealing with really hard things. But then there comes a time where I don't understand sometimes when people are suffering why they wouldn't want to be with the brethren. Right? I mean, these, this is where this is, this is supposed to be. In a real, this, is, this is your family. Jesus says that. That's not hyperbole. These are my brothers, my mothers, my sisters, right? I mean, that's who we are. And Jesus says, I strongly desire to be with you. These knuckleheads, these total knuckleheads. And he still wanted to be with them. He loves them. Think about that. How do you view the brethren? Jesus longs to be with them. So this, when you become a Christian, this is what becomes your desire. You want to be with the saints. You do. We run into people all the time in door to door. They just they say, I don't go to church anymore, I got jaded, this and that and the other thing. I'm sure people get jaded, but the, but the bottom line is if you're in Christ, you're going to love the saints, and you're going to want to be with the saints. John 8 44, strong words Jesus has with the Jews here. Jewish leaders probably, but the text um, indicates that they're Jews. There's Jews in general as well, that he's just bantering back and forth, and he says this You are of your father the devil. Strong language strong language think of that father the devil Jesus is okay to say that right Paul says similar things about false prophets but you are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires the lusts of your father he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lives. lies. It's interesting here. The devil has desires. He has these passions. He's driven. He's really, he's, he's driven. Every day. Every day he's driven for one purpose, and it's to steal, it's to kill, it's to destroy, it's to distort, it's to slander, it's to make you think awful things about me and and to be in my head about you and in your head about God. And that's that's what he does. He just he has these passions that he just he hates God, he hates God's people, and he wants to to stifle and, and and discourage and and depress. That's what he wants to do. He's got these longings. And they are wicked. And yet they're shared in some sense with other human beings like these Jews. You're of your father the devil. You want to do the desires of your father, he says. Think of that. You want to, you want to do the lusts of your father. Your lusts are similar to his. You want to kill me. You need to understand what's energizing you. See, again, this is why Paul always says our, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Jesus' battle ultimately was not against Pharisees, was it? Well, we think it is oh if we can just get this policy to change that guy in office this, this all that you know that's the issue well there's a bigger war going on here and you're dealing with puppets and there's one puppeteer over those puppets and there's a sovereign God over that puppeteer but still that's what's going on here these Jews to whom Jesus is talking have these strong desires and they're in accordance with Satan's and what are they? It's not, he uses the word lust here, but he's not, sexual lust is not in view. It's, it's malice, it's murder, it's, and it's driven by envy and greed. So these lusts and these desires can encompass greed, envy, and murder. And Christians do not live by these things. We're not supposed to, Peter says. Romans 1. Romans 1. For sake of time, I won't read the whole passage there, but you're familiar, I'm sure, that Paul is saying that he looks out over the the whole vast world of human beings and he doesn't even have to meet them to say that they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. He doesn't even have to know who they are, he just knows it's true. And they suppress the truth about God in creation and in conscience so that they're without excuse. They know that God is there. They know that he's a judge. They know that sin is wrong. They suppress that truth. It's interesting if you read through Romans 1, write down how many times Paul says they knew. Although they knew. Although they knew. Although they know. Although they give hearty approval. Look at how many times it says they know. Paul is saying these people are without excuse. Why? Because they know. They really do know. That sin is wicked and that there's a God in heaven and that sin is worthy of judgment. That's, that, that's the text. And so when God does what he does, it's actually a just response because these people know. So what does it say? Romans 1.24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts. There's the word, the lusts of their hearts. Where does it come from? It comes from your heart. He gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurities so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So Paul speaks of God deliberately giving people over to indulge in what their unregenerate natural heart truly wants and lusts for. And what is it that they lust for? Being good? Being good? No. Impurity. He says that. He gives them over to the, in the lust of their hearts to impurity. That's what they want. People always do what they want. People don't like the outcomes of what they do, but they will always do what they want. And what do people want? They want, to be, they want the things that are impure. They want the things that are forbidden because they live according to their flesh. When you see people doing things over and over when they're entrenched in sin they're doing what they want to do. This is extremely important when you're dealing with addictions and stuff like that. In our culture we've, we, we say that it, it, we victimize it. We say that they're victims and we put a lot of victimology on the link. We say wounds and scars and these kinds of things. And it's not to say they don't create those. Okay, I'm not downplaying that. But what I am saying is that it's their fault. It's their fault. It's the lusts of their hearts chasing impurity. That's what it is. And so, what's God's response? Oh, this is what you want? You don't want me? I give you over to it. It's a just response, and it's an active response to these things. God is not here making these people sin, He's responding to the willful, wicked act of these people exchanging the truth of God. For a lie. In other words, they live for created things and they give God up. He responds and gives them up to what they want. This is God letting go of the leash He has to let them go after the poison they want. People out there are so deceived as to what they think is wrong with the world. Maybe it's the government, maybe it's my boss, maybe it's the economy, maybe it's policy. Paul says it's the lust of men's hearts that don't want God. What men and women need, and what maybe what you need, is a heart transplant. That's what you need. You need a new heart. That's what the New Covenant promises, is that everyone who's, who's born again actually receives a heart of flesh, a heart that's able to be molded by the Lord, that wants to listen to the Lord, a heart that's alive to the Lord, and not a heart of stone. It's the heart that has to change. You need a new birth. I love that passage when you're reading in John 3. Oh, I love that passage so much with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes, he wants to butter Jesus up. Oh, nobody can do what you do unless God's with him. Jesus, oh, man, you're, you're doing great, you know, and I recognize that and you're godly and, you know, I want in at some level, right? And Jesus looks at him and he says, you got to be born again. No relationship built. And Jesus does this over and over. you, you got to be born again. Oh, woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God, you'd ask me for it. Boom. No relationship built. Just, it, just there. Just, it's me. Or be born again. Or unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Not, not much relationship building going on. And Jesus just tells him why. Because people need him. They need to be born again. They need the water of life. They need to repent because the problem is the heart. Why withhold that from people? Why wait? Certainly there's wisdom, right? There's wisdom with family and coworkers at some level, but at some level it becomes to be cruel when you you don't tell them you need to be born again because people's hearts need to be changed. And this is what Paul is after in Romans 1, that the heart of man is just longing after things it ought not. Romans 7, verse 8, Paul, they are talking about the goodness of the law, but the reality of indwelling sin and how those work together. And Paul says this, but sin, verse 8, chapter 7, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. That's the word coveting, lusts, lusts of every kind. For apart from law, the sin is dead. This is another passage here revealing the tragic reality of the wickedness of men's hearts and the reality of indwelling sin. God can pronounce a good command like, don't covet a man's wife. Don't covet my wife. That's a good command, isn't it? The law is good. Don't murder. That's great. That's very good, right? Don't covet. And the response of the human heart is not heartfelt obedience it actually becomes coveting of every kind let me think about all the wives i can covet so wicked paul showing that even humanity who had the law of god like the jews will not and cannot love or obey the lord without god's intervention by the spirit of god we are rebels, brethren. We are rebels in our nature, in and of ourselves. We are rebels. You can't understand the love of God unless you understand the fact that you're a rebel. You're not going to understand why the love of God is so amazing that He would, because you don't understand you're a rebel. Think about who God is loving, but it causes all these lusts to come up. They were dormant at some level, but when the good commandment comes, they just get stirred up. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Again Paul is speaking to the fact that we sin because we're sinners. Right, we don't we don't become sinners when we sin, we sin because we are sinners. It starts in the heart. We are those who are dead before God. We are spiritually cut off, unresponsive and unwilling to be alive to God. Before we are in Christ, we all lived in constant sin. All our jokes, all our plans, our motives, our actions, tainted with sin and self. And he says that we have these lusts of the flesh, these desires of the flesh, and we lived for them. That's what we did. You see this in kids, don't you? You see this in little kids. You see this in kids, really, at all levels. You see it in all people, but I mean, you really see it in kids. They don't have that restraint yet. That's why parents have to help them give them that restraint. I hope you're doing that for your children. Letting them know that this is not acceptable. But you see this in kids. They want what they want when they want it. right? They just want it. And what is that? That's the flesh. That's the lusts of the flesh. It's just there. And they want it. It's these strong desires and they will call you names. They will call their siblings names. They will hit their siblings. They'll storm off. They'll pitch fits when they don't get what they want. That's the lusts of the flesh in action. That's what that is. That's what you're, you're seeing right there. Oh, that's, that's, that's unrestained passions. That's what that is. No self-control. And this is where whining comes from. Whining comes from the, from the lusts of the flesh and when they finally get what they want when parents give in which is not good they're saft you know they're just okay good now they've got what they want right at least for 5 minutes but adults who don't know the lord are the same maybe just more sophisticated in their expressions of it right you see it on twitter you see it on facebook just lashing out just venting just complaining on and on mob hysteria. People don't even know why they're out there protesting this or that. It's just, it's just this lust to, I don't know, blame. It's just there, just living for just, just these strong desires to just please yourself. Do what makes you happy. That's the West, right? Do what makes you happy, what makes you feel good. There's bumper stickers that say that. Do what makes you feel good. I saw one the other day. I was behind a red light. I was like, wow, it's just right there. Do what makes you feel good. I'm like, man, if that guy had cut me off and I obey his bumper sticker, he wouldn't have liked that bumper sticker anymore. But it's an utter self-focus rather than a God-focus. Parents thinking that their success is letting their kid do what they want as long as they're happy is just asking for a train wreck of a life. Especially when you think that kids by nature are dead and living for wicked lusts. Those who don't know the Lord, letting your kids live for what they want to, just whatever makes them happy is just such a horrible path to live on we, or to, to set them on. But we used to indulge in the desires of the flesh. And of course we can't fail to mention that the lust of the flesh does often mean sexual impurity. I'm sure Paul has that in his mind in Ephesians chapter 2. There's no doubt that this term includes that. And as non-believers we used to live for these. A lot of us. Some of us perhaps converted young did not experience that which you can praise God for that. Praise God for all that he kept you from. But for some of us it wasn't that. It's not true. We did, we did live that way. And now we live in such a sexualized culture where sexual intimacy is treated as commonplace and casual. As casual as talking about the weather. I've probably said this illustration before but it's so striking to me when I was eating at a local restaurant, Taco Casa one day and I was sitting in the back and I w- there was a table, maybe just literally six feet from me maybe, and it was a young woman, she was probably 25, talking to an older gentleman who claimed to be some minister. I don't know what kind of minister he was. But she was there talking about all of her exploits with men. And I was, and it was, it was a little bit later, maybe like two o'clock, nobody was in there, so I was just in there working. And, and just listening, and I was just like, it was so insane to me It's one thing a a guy, you know, that's not as surprising. This is a young woman, and she's speaking this way. It was was so nauseating. It was so nauseating. And as I reflected on it, I I, I couldn't not say something, so I, I did say something to them. It was super awkward because of the content, what they were saying and me coming up. It was just weird. I had, to, I had to say something. I was just provoked. I'm just like, "You need to be free." You know I dropped her some scripture in him too, because he claimed he was a minister, and I, anyway. But what dawned on me was just that sexual intimacy is just utterly profaned in our culture. You can sit there and talk about it over a meal. It's like the woman. Is it the woman in Proverbs? Is it, I can't remember exactly where it is. Maybe someone well, off the top of my head, my brain. Or the adulteress she wipes her mouth and says, "I've done nothing wrong." You know, it's just this. It's just this. It, it's so commonplace now. And and I realized that this has become her identity, rather than being a good gift of God shared between two human beings, it has become her identity. And 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 just like people buy a certain car to promote their identity of living a certain lifestyle she is with men and this has become her identity and I was like this is our culture there's nothing sacred about it it's utterly profane that's where we live she's living according to the lust of the flesh I, I hear about and I don't have social media but I hear about this phenomenon now that there are these women that video themselves in the gym and video guys looking at them. I guess to sort of say like, oh, that guy's a creep and he's stalking me, even though they dress in a way that makes the guys objectify them. It's just this total double standard. They're the ones who want to be objectified. It's, it's just, again, it's just an expression of the lust of the flesh. There's current statistics among, there's some research done about pornography use. And the current stats among Protestants that claim to be born again, so that's a pretty narrow field, it's not just Protestants, but Protestants that are born again. The recent stats is that it's about 30% look at porn monthly. Current stats of Protestant men that claim to be born again. 30% look at porn monthly. Now this is, this, is, this is awful. One in three. And it doesn't mean that every church will reflect the 30%, but I mean, the bottom line is you can bet it's in a church near you. It's the lust of the flesh. You can look at it, though, just from a standpoint, if you're one who happens to struggle with this, you can look at it from the standpoint is that it's not 100%. You can get victory over that. You don't have to say yes to that. You can say no to that. One of my concerns is that In the broader Christian culture, because porn is perceived to be so common, men in the church, and women, but especially men in the church, are tempted to believe it's not that big of a deal. Brethren, I'm just saying, do not buy that lie. Jesus says it is adultery of the heart. And it needs to be put to death. It needs stiff measures to deal with. Do not play with it. It will cost you your spouse spouse's trust for who knows how long. By God's grace, hopefully it would be a short season. Depends on how much you do it. It could be a long season. I've seen it destroy marriages. Pornography. Not sleeping with another woman. Pornography. I've seen it destroy them. Folks that don't go to this church anymore. I've seen it destroy them. There are other, some other factors too, but it just, it just pushed it over the edge. Do not play with it. Do not live for these lusts. And you hear people say, but the access to porn is so pervasive and at your fingertips. And it's true. But so also is the scriptures. Right? You've got a cell phone in your pocket at all times. So also is the brethren. You don't get one, call another one. Not to mention the fact that you got access to the living God all the time. Pray at all times, he says. No excuses for pornography. None. None. Jesus will not let you have one. As we know in the Proverbs, it's the aimless man, the Proverbs say, that becomes the sitting duck. It's the man who's not daily arming himself to so obey Christ or be salt and light or, or take up his responsibilities with his family and his wife or her family and her husband. You, you let your sword down. You let your guard down. You neglect the battle and you wander. And you're perusing and you're watching you know, two hours and three hours of shorts on YouTube and you're just kind of just floating, right? You just float. And what happens? Oh, well, Satan knows. he's there. Remember, he doesn't take vacations. He knows. YouTube definitely knows. They've got algorithms to say, "Oh, he looked at that for a little bit longer. I'm going to shoot him another one. I'm going to shoot him another one. I'm going to shoot him another one." Right? They know. Think of King David. What a sobering example of a man who loved the Lord. Yet when it was wartime, he neglected arming himself. You know the text, right? I'm going to read it, but I want you to think as I read it. When when did he fall prey to lust and adultery? It's all about the timing. It's all about the timing. Listen. And it came to pass at the return of the year, at the time when kings go out to war, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. Think of that. Everyone going out, this whole host of an army going out, and David sends Joab. And yet David stays home. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried at Jerusalem. And it came to pass at eventide that David arose from his bed. Just taking it easy, you know. Arose from his bed. He rose from his bed at eventide. People go to bed at night. David was getting up. And he walked upon the roof of the king's house and from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to look at. What's going on here? It's the tragic episode of a man of God who neglected his role. The man whose power went to his head. Man who maybe thought he could just take some time off the battlefield. I mean, so much blood, he shed so many victories, so many successes. Right? And he's like, yeah, "You know, I can put my sword down." One of the things you don't realize when you read the text, unless you do some study and some digging, is that the, the time for kings to war, go, going out to war means probably the springtime. It's when the rain stopped. So David had some time during the rain to sort of take some reprieve. God isn't against rest, 100%, right? But this is the time when he was supposed to go to war. The roads were cleared. It's time for him to gird, to, to gird up his loins. It's time for him to get on his horse. It's time to be the man he is. And he doesn't. It's all about what time is it? What is the era in which you live? Steve was preaching on this. It's the last days. This is the time is fulfilled. This is the time of the mission of the church. This is the time when Satan is against us. This is the time when his wrath is great. This is the time when you need to be watching for each other. This is the time when you need to train your your children. This is the time when, when you have to pray and watch for your brethren that they fall not into temptation. This is the time in which we live. This is not a time to get fixated on your best life now in the way that America does. They want you to buy that. They want you to, to own that vision. Don't have that vision. Have the vision of the scriptures that say there's a great war for the souls of men. It's war right now. That, that's uncomfortable, right? It's uncomfortable to say it in this American context where we just want to coast, but it is war right now. It is not time to let your sword down. There will be a time when you can rest from your labors. This is not the time. David, if he would have known that, he would have never destroyed his kingdom by his own wicked choices with his own hands. Please do not think that this passage in 2 Samuel 11 is an example for you. Men, it is a warning. It is a warning. Being passive, neglecting the disciplines of godliness, hiding, drifting, It can lead to the destruction of your lives. Get serious. Quit being sloppy. That's the point. Some of you are sloppy. Peter is really saying, be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. You remember what Paul said before? I think it was Festus or Felix. And he says, I was talking to Felix about righteousness, judgment, and self-control. You ever read that? And you're like, oh, that's self-control. You'd think they'd be big lofty ideas, right? Day of Judgment, righteousness, self-control. Self-control. Because in the Christian life, it really sort of comes down to that. (laughs) That every day, you've got this warring flesh that I do too, and you've got to control it. By the Spirit of God. Women and men alike. You've got to control your impulses to want to do what's wrong. And you can do it by the Spirit of God. Some of you need to tighten up. Numbers 15, 37 through 40. David should have remembered this verse. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. Tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner of a a cord of blue. It's a beautiful little tassel, this cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot, so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. He says it over and over. I, you are not without resource. I am the Lord your God. Walk before me and be blameless. If you've got to make a tassel with a blue thing hanging off of it to remember, I'm the Lord your God, do it. Obedience is not an option in the Christian life. It's not legalism to obey God. Every day, Paul says, put on the armor of God. Be strong in the Lord. And I want to, I can't leave without saying this, though. You know, these are hard things to say, but th- you got to say this, right? The gospel's amazing. It's amazing. David was forgiven. Right? You can be forgiven. That's amazing. What a scandal at some level, right? David is forgiven, but that's the gospel. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all, not just mistakes, but all sin. And those of you who are dealing with this in your marriages and among your friendships, You need to recognize that if Jesus can forgive this person, you should be able to as well. doesn't mean trust will be there. Maybe that will take time. But it does mean that over time, things can warm again. David wrote for us some of the most precious psalms from that. And not only that, But if you remember Psalm 51 where the Lord begins to restore fellowship with David. He says, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation and I will tell sinners and they will be converted. So just because you've won it doesn't mean you can't still go preach, right? It doesn't mean you still can't go testify of the grace of Jesus. There is grace. So thankful for that. What a picture, though. Here's David. It doesn't get any better than David, truly. I mean, it really doesn't get much better than David. And doesn't it just set you up that there's really only one hero? There's only one hero in the Bible, and his his name is Jesus Christ. All of your righteousness that you will ever need is found in him. It's not in you. It's just not. The best of men are men at best. Pray for me. I don't want to fall. I've got to preach these kinds of things, knowing that I myself fail and stumble in so many ways. And while it's scary, it just highlights the beauty and glory and saving power of the one. So thankful for him. Because without him, none of us stand. None of us need to look down on any of us when we fall into sin. Paul says that. He says, don't you go try to help someone get out of sin with pride. Don't you do it because you'll fall into it too. Don't you do it. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. They're like, oh, this guy over here sleeping with his mother-in-law. This is horrible. And they're talking about him, right? They're not doing anything about it. Paul says, you should have mourned instead. You've become arrogant. Don't do that. Don't do that. But Peter is saying, these lusts are real. These lusts, this is what we used to live for. And implied in that is we can't live for these lusts anymore. We can't be driven by these fleshly passions. We have a different anchor. What is that? Back in 1 Peter 4, the will of God. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Peter places the will of God as the opposite pursuit of the lusts of men. The will of God, the lusts of men. Now, the, lot, the, the, the will of God is a, is, is a confused topic, and I don't have time to go through all of some things that I wrote here. But God's will, just say it this way, God's will here in Peter is God's will to live a holy life dedicated to obeying his word. That's what God's will is. 1 Peter 2.15, For such is the will of God that by doing right you may be able to silence the ignorance and foolish men. So the will of God in First in, in Peter 2 is living according to what God has spoken is right. Like what? Well, everything. Everything. God has spoken with regard to our living before him, with regard to husbands and wives and kids and sin and brethren and hospitality and giftings and all these things, right? Mission, proclaiming, all these things. Starts with repentance and belief, right? That's the first obeying the will of God. And then out from that is all the other commands. Whatever God has spoken for us to do his will, this is what we live for. This is what we long for. It's interesting that in the book of Colossians chapter 1, when Paul prays for the Colossians, he says this. He says, I pray that you might be filled with the the knowledge of the will of God. Let me read it so I don't butcher it. Colossians chapter 1. Just listen to Paul's prayers. For this reason also, since the day we heard it, I have not ceased to pray for you, and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Filled with the knowledge of his will. People that just are just slam full of God's word. Just full of it, right? Just full of God's word. Filled with his will. And how are we filled? Well, A, we pray. Paul's praying that. How many, you know how many times, It's an interesting study. If you go to Psalm 119, look how many times the psalmist prays for understanding. I don't even remember. It's, I think it's well over 30, 40 times. It's probably way more than that. It's probably like 70. It's just over and over and over and over and over. To understand God's word, you need God <laughs> to, to show you what that is. But it also means you've got to set it before you. You've got to set this word before you. Pray, God, fill me with it. Get in the scriptures. Meditate on the scriptures. As Moses says, it is no idle word for you. It's not a vain thing. It's a good thing. It is your life, he says. And how long are you to do this? Well, Peter says here the rest of the time, in the flesh. How long are you supposed to live this way? How long are you supposed to arm yourself? How long are you supposed to to not live for the lusts of men, but for the will of God? How long? feels like a long time right walking with the Lord you're like man it gets really tiring (laughs) the rest of the time in the flesh brethren Christ is our life and he's not just our life this morning he's not just our life tomorrow he's our life till the end and he must be what a privilege to have him be that but he must be that if you're to endure to the end He's the reason for our existence. He's the one we live for. It is a marriage, after all. One flesh relationship where we are united to one another by the Spirit through faith. So we're married to Him. We can't make Him a member of things that are impure. So, um, yeah, sobering word. Normal Christians don't live for the lusts of men but for the will of God as long as they're alive. And that must be us. That must be us here at New Covenant, people driven by the book. Do not downplay the importance of the scriptures in your life. Do what you can to get into it. I mean, I, I personally, every, every, you know, in the morning, I st- truly strive before people get up to just get my mind in the truth it's so important and in prayer as much as I can and I have to fight just like you, you guys I mean I, I wish there I could spend more time but I can't but you have to have your mind renewed the scriptures are vital the scriptures are that which makes you a fruitful person even in times of drought right anyway you guys know all this but but, but do it do it lust of the flesh they want to take you out Peter says they, the lust of the flesh that wage war against the soul they wage war. Don't, don't, don't treat, don't be passive, you know, don't you've got to do work. I'll leave you with this. Jesus told his disciples, they were like, Man, how many people can be saved? Or how can people be saved? And and Jesus said, Many will want to enter and not be able. Strive to enter the narrow gate. Oh, you know, reform guys don't like that. That sounds too legalistic. Jesus says, Strive. Strive to enter the narrow gate. The word is agony. The word is effort. The word is work. Yeah. Now, ultimately, we want to say that a life lived and striving for the narrow gate is a life endued by grace, and it's a life that reveals itself to be in Christ and supernatural and all that, but still, Jesus says, disciples strive. But you know what? You don't strive on your own. You strive with your brethren, and you strive with the Lord's nearness. And that is just as real as I am, if not more. So just remember that. Let's pray. Father, I I just, um, I pray that you would please help us all to no longer live for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Lord, just help us. Lord, help us to have the power to just, to just live knowing that what you've spoken is best. And beautiful and true and praiseworthy and wise and healthy. Sound doctrine. And Lord, just please, please help us to this end. Help us as brethren to just be patient with one another, to help each other to to just continue, to encourage one another, to have the scriptures before us, have the truth before us, um, that we can live in a manner pleasing to you in all respects. And Lord, for those in this room who can hear me that realize that they still do live for the lusts of the flesh, that you would show them that the Son can make you free from that slavery. The Lord Jesus came to save and to free those who were in chains to sin. And Lord, that they would come to you, call on you, and find deliverance. And so, Lord, we just praise you and thank you for this word and help us to live for it, live it out for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.